0: Good day, everyone, and welcome to B-Sides, where we discuss whatever doesn't fit into a sermon. This episode follows our message from Judges chapters 6 through 7: A Cowardly Lion. In this episode, we will have three parts. Part one: a poem about Gideon, written by me. Part two: The Threshing Floor and the Threshold. And then part three: to fleece or not to fleece. But before we begin with our summary of the message, I want to invite you listeners to send in any questions that you may have regarding life, the Bible, theology, practical living, anything on your mind that might uh, be Something I can handle. Um, because I really believe that questions are pertinent to growth. And that, in fact, in the word question, you have buried there the word quest. The question launches us on a quest. And I love questions because they make me think. And they make me have to uh, put things together that maybe I never had to wrestle with before. And even though we may not always have answers... I think the act of asking is a very healthy expression of wanting to expand. So if anyone wants to begin submitting questions, that I, uh, I'll i start fielding them. Uh, you can send them to me on, at my email, brandonmcculloch at calvarychapel.com. That's brandonmcculloch at calvarychapel.com. How to spell it? Look at the notes wherever you're listening to this podcast. I always include my email in the notes. Or if you go to the fellowship, my email is in the bulletin. So Brandon McCulloch at Calvarychapel.com. Well, as we start each show, let's summarize Sunday's message in 60 seconds or less. So as we enter into the story of Gideon, Israel has fallen back into their sin cycle, and they are now cowering in a cave of cowardice, because the Midianites come in and take all their food, and they're kept there because of fear. We often, sin will trap us in our caves, and fear will keep us there. And what we end up doing is, because fear tells us that we're not good enough, that we're too small, we don't have what it takes, we begin to try to add things on in our lives to make ourselves feel safe and comfortable. Well, what God does with Gideon is Gideon raises army, but God tells him, Gideon, they're too many. And so God whittles the army down to a mere 300 soldiers. And then they conquer the Midianites with those 300 by blowing trumpets and breaking clay jars from which a a lantern would be produced. The Midianites were confused and defeated each other. And that reminded us of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says that God's light is hidden within us who are jars of clay. That's a weak timer. And I did not get to get in the fact that we are lions like Gideon. Brave, courageous, strong. But it's buried within fear. And uh, God will use breaking to get that out. But let's go forward. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that in part two of this episode. Part one, Gideon, a poem by Brandon McCulloch. I wrote this poem after I prepared the message for Gideon, and I want to say a couple words before I read it so that it can mean more. Um, First of all, I I like poetry in free verse, so it doesn't necessarily have any rhyming scheme. Um, Also... Um, the poets I enjoy, so I typ- you typically tend to mimic what you enjoy, the poets I enjoy uh, write in a way that draws you into something to chew on, to meditate on. And that's what I hope a poem like this can do. So unfortunately, you're going to be hearing it and won't be able to see it. Um, I may or may not be able to put it online with the podcast, but you, uh, you might just have to go back and listen to it a few more times because it's intended to be chewed on, to be meditated on to visualize a bit um but then also uh so that you to help you process it um there's three parts Uh, the first part is going to talk about uh, what i talked about in the message how the torches were inside the jars and um what these torches were is they weren't literally on fire in the jar they were smoldering because they didn't have enough air. They're trapped inside this jar. Much in the same way that Israel was trapped in their caves and Gideon was trapped in a wine press trying to thresh his wheat. Uh, the way that fear, the, the coward part of us, the not lion part, uh, it will keep us confined. It will keep us restrained and constricted and cramped and choked. Um, these torches were like that. It became a symbol of the Israelites at that time. But it was when the jars were broken— that the the air rushes to the torch and the smoldering flame becomes a roaring flame, and that's when we the lion comes out of us. We're no longer cowards, but lion. We come out of our cave. We come out of the jar. So the first part talks about that smoldering fire trapped within a jar, and it describes uh, the shattering of the jar. The second part uh, will then talk about because the jar shattered. The fresh air of night rushes in and the flame comes to life and it sends the Midianite army into a panic, which then leads to the third part of the poem, which then gets to the lion and it talks about um, in order to get the lion there, um, God will shave and whittle and kind of remove things so that there's room for us to no longer be cramped, but to come out. Because we typically confine ourselves in the jar, in the cave, because we, we are holding on and we're wrapping ourselves with these things that make us feel more, uh, make us feel secure, make us feel certain about ourselves. And and we constrict ourselves by bringing these things into our lives. God wants to remove them so that we now have enlargement and freedom to stretch out and grow. And So a lion is more fearsome outside of a cave, Right. Uh, so here you go. Here's the poem. Restrained, it smoulders a fire denied draft of night's starry sea. Then disjointed slivers of clay weep distress over dull and indifferent stones. Some fires refuse to live in jars. Night's fresh air rushes, it raises the dormant fury to life. It rages, flaming claws unleashed to lash at the black fabric of night. Torn and tattered, hunted by senseless panic, darkness scatters. Cornered in a cave of cowardice, a lion let loose, cares little for probability. Too many, he says, shred shame, flay fear, and courage will emerge. Poverty cannot afford the rent of timidity. So he shaves and whittles until aroused our dwindled remains roar, a lion loosed unrestrained. Part 2. Threshing Floors and Thresholds In Judges chapter 6, we meet Gideon threshing his wheat in a winepress. Let me read. 6 verse 11. Now the angel of Yahweh came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abirazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So the Midianites were coming against Israel during the harvest because they wanted to take all their food, make themselves rich, and then keep Israel weak and suppressed. Um, Gideon is trying to thresh the wheat in a place where uh, he could preserve it and keep it so that he wouldn't be noticed. Now, threshing wheat is the act of separating the husk of the grain from the grain itself. The husk wasn't really meant to be eaten. It was a protective barrier on the grain while the stalk grew. So when it came time to harvest your grains, you would go out um, and and cut it all down, and you would gather it together, and then you would take it to a threshing floor, which was a wide-open, flat, and hard surface, and the community would throw their grain onto this threshing floor and either people or animals or both. You'd walk over the grain, thus crushing it. And in the crushing process, hence uh, thresh sometimes means to thrash or to beat something. In the threshing process, the chaff would separate from the wheat there would be a separation. The husks would fall off. So the unusable part came off and the usable part, which was buried within, would emerge. Then, in order to separate, now that they're detached, in order to get the wheat free uh, from the chaff, uh, all you had to do was take uh, like a winnowing fork or even a quilt or any sort of use where you use air or wind, um, you would... You would then fling it up, and the wind would take the chaff away. You see that in Psalm chapter 1, right? Where the psalmist says that the wicked will uh, be carried away like chaff in the wind. Yeah, because the grain was heavy. It had substance. It was usable. It was the real deal. It was that which you grew the crops for. And so it would come back down, but the chaff would float away. Because it was weightless. It was empty. It was not useful in any way. And you see in here something that we didn't touch on in the message at all, that it's yet another picture of letting the lion that God has made us to be to come out. We wrap that lion up in chaff, in some sort of a husk, And whatever it is that we do to survive, we've sinned and we've suffered and we have a past and we think, nah, I can't do that or that's not for me or I just don't want to. And so we go in our cave. We're the fire in the jar or we are the wheat in the husk. Now, we're titling this part Threshing Floors and Thresholds because I heard something this week can't remember where. I think it was on another podcast. Yes, that's right. It was an Irish poet. uh, John Donahue said that the word threshold comes from threshing floor. So what is a threshold? A threshold is that base at a door, right? Um, It's that part that you step over as you're coming into a doorway. That's a threshold. And so a threshold has also come to be known as that boundary line between two domains, two realms, between two dimensions. One phase of life, another phase of life. Outside, inside, living room, kitchen. Thresholds are boundary points of which you move from one place to another. One phase, one stage, one growth to another. And it's in the threshing floor. It's through the act of being threshed that we pass from one phase to another. We cross over the threshold. Yeah, it's not comfortable being threshed. We don't like the chaff being removed, the husk being taken off of the wheat. Sometimes we felt comfortable and secure just as we were. But then there's some sort of crushing that happens. And then there's the removing as wind blows and there goes your husk. You liked that husk. You were wrapped in it. It was comfortable. It was cozy. You, it was what everybody saw you as. But this now naked and uncovered and exposed and vulnerable grain of wheat, it's uncomfortable. That's the threshold. That's you going from this phase to that phase. That's us being in sin and suffering and being moved to salvation and hopefully from salvation to service for the world. That part that Israel and their judges never seem to be able to get them to. And here's the thing. We go through seasons in life, right? We go through seasons where there's a new harvest at different periods of life. And so there's a new opportunity for us to be threshed. There's a new threshold for us to cross over. So our being threshed is not something that happens only once. It's as if when you take the husk and the wheat is exposed... Or we take the lion out of the cave. It's as if every time this happens, or the fire out of the jar, every time this happens, the lion roars more ferociously. The fire flames more brilliantly. The wheat is tastier and more nutrient-rich and more satisfying. Because as we keep going, we're we're shedding more husks, more layers of this false pretend self that we're putting up in front of people to sort of make ourselves something, or just to simply survive. It may just be a coping mechanism, but whatever it is, we are releasing these layers, one season at a time, getting down further and almost like an onion, one layer at a time, to get to the true potency, the true you, the you God made you to be, the ferocious, roaring lion, the flame burning fire. The nutrient sustaining wheat. As you get closer into the center of an onion, it becomes more potent. And so you and I, the more we are threshed, the more the chaff is taken off, the more potent we also become. So we may not understand momentarily why is this trampling on me? Why is that person stepping on me? Why does it feel like I'm always underneath the foot of life? Because you're being threshed. And if you stick with it, if you keep doing what you're supposed to do, even if at the moment it's not yielding the results you want, but if we keep seeking God, we keep praying, we keep holding true to his word and walking his ways and keeping on the straight and narrow, eventually the threshing process gets you from one end to the other end of the threshold. And you are now at the next chapter of life. And the thing about God's way of living is, is that the next chapter is always a better version of you. You're always growing closer to him. It's what the New Testament calls sanctification. And speaking of which, it's funny how all this came together this week. Um, I preach on Gideon and the threshing the wheat. I hear this on the podcast, that threshold and thresh floor have this similarity. And then I'm in Matthew Matthew's Gospel chapter 3 and this comes up you'll remember it John the Baptist is at the Jordan River and he's baptizing and Jesus comes uh well he hasn't come yet he's about to come but uh Matthew's setting the scene and he shows the people getting baptized and he he gives us a little a little blip of uh, John's message of repentance and then the religious leaders show up yeah um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that really gets us to the heart of John's message. So I want you to appreciate this. Uh, so let's let's set the scene here. Matthew three. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey, which, by the way, harkens back to Elijah, one of Israel's greatest prophets. And this is important because John is the first prophet since the last prophet of the Old Testament. There's been 400 years of no prophet speaking. And here comes John and he's even playing the part, the dress. He's got the costume of a prophet on. Uh, I hate to call it costume because he's not faking, but he's got, he's got the appropriate attire on, right? Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to see him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, what are they doing at the Jordan River? They're confessing their sins. Because John is asking them to repent, which means to change your mind, to have a transformation. Um, Just like going through a threshold. I once thought like this. I saw the world like that. Now I see it like this. Now I see it like that, right? There is, I was this, I crossed over, now I'm this. Well, in the baptism, we have a threshold. John is in the wilderness, we're told. They're coming out from Jerusalem and Judea. He baptizes them on this wilderness side, and they cross over the Jordan in their baptism and exit on the Jerusalem side, going back to life in Israel. And if you remember, hopefully you do, because we just covered this, This is the exact pattern that Joshua took the Israelites through as they entered the promised land. From the wilderness, through the Jordan River, and into the promised land. Thus, the prophet John, the baptizer, is calling Israel to a new phase. He's saying, in a sense, when he says, repent, be baptized from your sins, what he's saying, in a sense, is... We have come to the threshold. Everything is about to change. Will you cross over or not? And then he continues. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Now, remember, these are the religious leaders, and they're two very different classes of religious leaders who teach some very different beliefs, but nonetheless, they believe in Yahweh as Israel's God. Uh, They come, and uh, he, he now addresses them. You brood of vipers! In other words, you offspring of the serpent. Catch that Genesis 3.15 allusion? You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree's Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is his message to the religious leaders. Oh, good for you. You know what God you belong to. Well, now live like it. (laughs) Bear fruit. God can create sons of Abraham from these stones. Now, I imagine in the next verse, verse 11, uh, he is changing his address now to the general audience. So he's had his fire and brimstone with the religious leaders. And on that note, he's thinking, to everyone I say. So he continues, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. You're all coming out to see me? I'm not even worthy to carry his sandal. This is the one I'm preparing the way for, by the way. He is the threshold that we've come to. The entire history of the universe is about to cross over into a new era, a new dawn, a new chapter, a new dispensation A new age. He, referring to Jesus, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And this is where it gets interesting. He continues, His winnowing fork is in His hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. There you go. He's going to clear his threshing floor with the winnowing fork. Okay, so a winnowing fork, by the way, I didn't know this, and so I don't know why sometimes translations have to make it so tough, <laughs> but the winnowing fork, uh, to winnow simply means to sift, to separate. It's kind of like what you're doing when you're threshing. The winnowing fork would have just been a fork where you're doing that with, so you fling it up in the air and the wind would take the chaff away. Okay, so he's got his winnowing fork in his hand. In other words, life is threshing us. Life is threshing us. You know that. I don't have to tell you the ways you've been threshed. Jesus is coming, John is saying, and here's where the threshold is. He's coming to determine what stays and what goes. What was fake and inauthentic in our lives? What was worthless and useless? What were those things that just had to go because they were not going to live forever? And what were the things that were genuine? What were the things that were of God? Where was the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Where is that part of us that will live forever? And he is going to separate the two. The chaff, your cowardly self, the jar of clay, will forever be gone. But it was what was within The part of us that is the image of God. The part of us filled and enlivened with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that brings those little embers, the smoldering embers, to life. The one that gives our lion a roar instead of a squeak toy. (laughs) That's coming. And he's going to separate those. Now, we often read that, and here's here's what really struck me about this. Of course, I've always known about this passage. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, I've never read this. It was more like, I usually, and we usually hear it this way, usually read it as, there are people who are chaff and people who are wheat. Jesus is going to determine the people who should burn in hell forever and the people who should be gathered in his barn, a.k.a. heaven, forever. Now, I'm not saying that this is not saying that. I don't know. I think it's somewhat ambiguous. But what I'm wanting to point out is, okay, let's leave that there, right? That Jesus will be the judge of who goes where for eternity. Okay, we'll leave that there. But also, and perhaps more helpful once you are saved, is looking at this as a passage about the seasons of life, when we are being threshed and we're coming up upon a new threshold is that what's happening is there's this process of transformation in which Jesus, by the way, John said, he's holding the winnowing fork. Jesus is the one who will be gently separating for us the husk of our small self from the grain, the wheat of our true self. Don't you just love that? That we're going to come through seasons and patterns all the time, a continual growth and transformation. And every time, it's going to include a need for repentance. You're not always going to have to repent from some moral failure. Sometimes we are just going to have to repent from doing life a certain way and realizing this isn't the best way. I now see, I've come to a threshold and I can see on the other side there's a better way of living. There's a better way of following God. There's a better way of doing that. And every time we cross over, another layer of the husk is removed. Oh, friends, this is just so, so good. By the way, uh, I started looking around at translations to see if, 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 if I'm not without, if I'm within reason to read it this way, that the whole threshing uh, could be referring to our growth in this life as well as our eternal future. And my answer was, yes, you can read it that way. And here's why. One translation reads it like this. Um, By the way, I'll just tell you, since you're probably wondering, it's the message. I know some people don't like the message, but I think the message often provides for us, maybe not the best translation of the Bible, but a good commentary of what you're reading. Because it is an author, and by the way, he had a team of editors, so it wasn't just one person, so he had a system of checks and balances, but it is an author, Eugene Peterson, who's saying, hmm, what if we read it like this? So, uh... Let me read it to you. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. The real action comes next. The main character in this drama compared to him. I'm a mere stage hand. He will, he will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy spirit within you changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your lives He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false, he'll put out with the trash to be burned. Do you hear that? He'll place everything true, the wheat, in its proper place before God. Everything false, the husk, the chaff, he'll put out with the trash to be burned. He's going to clean the house, make a clean sweep of your lives here is a way of reading it as seasonal transformation. And then I also just loved how uh, this reading went along with the whole Gideon theme of, of the fire being stirred up within us, where it said, He will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. Oh, friends, this is so good, because now, okay, the threshing floor that Gideon is in, letting the wheat come out of the chaff. The image of, just the illustration, well, yeah, the image of Israel in the caves, because of sin, needing to come out, which I added the picture of a roaring lion coming out. And then the smoldering flame in the jar rising to life when the jar is smashed. And that is what Jesus is wanting to do. Ignite that life, the kingdom life, his life, his full, deep, sustaining, everlasting life. He wants to ignite that within us. So that's why sometimes we sin and make mistakes and suffer. That's why sometimes, unrelated to sin, we get trampled underfoot by life and people and circumstances. Because God is threshing so that we can become truer, more substantial people of character. Part 3. To fleece or not to fleece. There's a part in the story of Joshua where he fleeces God, not once, but twice— I did not cover it in the message because I felt it would have added way too much time to messages in which I already teach way too long. (laughs) So I decided to deal with it here. Now, what does it mean to fleece God? If you're not familiar, um, it's a phrase that has come actually from this story. And to fleece God basically means to ask God for a sign, for confirmation. Or you could even say as far as to test God. So we've come up with this phrase, fleece God, for all those other words, uh, because here Gideon tests God. He asks for a sign. He wants confirmation that he is indeed to lead this army against the Midianites by asking God to do something with this fleece, which is, uh, um, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a piece of fabric, a coat, uh, an outer piece of fabric, fabric. excuse me. Um, he wanted to do something with it twice. So I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to uh, give you guys some thoughts about Was Gideon right or wrong here? Should we ask God for signs or not? Test him? Fleece him? So Gideon, uh, in Judges 6, verse 36, Gideon had been called by God, you mighty man of valor. He's torn down his dad's statue of Baal. And now he's blown a trumpet and men have come to him. They're going to liberate Israel from Midian. And then it says that Gideon said to God, if... You will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, He wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Okay. But then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and all on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So, that convinced Gideon. Would it convince you? (laughs) I'm going to be presenting to you guys an outline, because I really don't have a big um, satisfactory certain answer on what I think about this myself. Um, I think there are times when God will give us signs and confirmations, but I am not 100% 100% sure if Gideon, like, are we supposed to do what Gideon did and ask for sign after sign until we're certain, okay, now I'll step out and do this. I'm not sure. Um So I'm going to read from you uh, from Wilmington's Guide to the Bible. It's a big, thick volume, an excellently outlined presentation of the Bible. And um, I'm going to read, well, first I'll just kind of be summarizing it, and then I'm going to actually read the part relating to Gideon for you. And, uh well, you guys can see what you think about it, Okay. Okay, so he's giving us some examples, biblical examples of fleece throwing. The servant of Abraham, in Genesis chapter 24, you may remember, was sent out to find a bride for Isaac, and you might remember that he prayed um, that he would know for certain that the bride for Isaac would come, that she was there, because she would ask to give his camels water. Well, guess what? As he's finishing the prayer, she comes and asks to give his camel waters. And then he's like, oh my goodness. What a sign. This is the woman Isaac is to marry. So he brings her back home. Uh, second example. King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, this one was interesting because um, Isaiah comes to him and says, hey, look, you don't need help from outside nations in this war. Trust God. Do you want a sign? Ask God any sign and he'll give it to you. (laughs) Ahaz says, I am not going to test God, which was strange because God himself was trying to prove to him that he can trust on him uh, to deliver him from his enemies. (laughs) He doesn't. Now, that's also then where um, the prophet turns to the king and says, okay, fine. This will be the sign that God will give to you. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Matthew picks that up in his gospel and applies it to the birth of Jesus. So on one hand, um, we look at that as, oh, the virgin birth was foretold. But on the other hand, we look at that and should see the larger context. That meaning we don't have to rely upon outside help. Here's your sign that God is with us and will deliver us. Third example, King Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 20. You may remember he was incredibly sick. And he wanted to know that he would be healed. So as a sign, as proof, as evidence that God heard his prayer to be healed, the sundial went backward 10 degrees. That's crazy stuff right there. Yeah, if that doesn't make you believe, I don't know what will. Fourth example, Satan. See, this is where asking for signs, testing God can get a little weird. Satan does it. You remember, um, he took Jesus up to the highest point of the temple and said, Hey, throw yourself down. And what did Jesus answer? (laughs) You shall not tempt the Lord your God or... Uh, That's the old King James. Or, you shall not test or put the Lord your God to the test. Yeah, that's probably a good example of where fleece throwing was not appropriate. (laughs) And then we come to Gideon, our fifth example, as I've already read to you. Okay, so then Wilmington gives us basic conclusions on fleece throwing. Given those five examples... I'm going to read him. He's got three for us here. On certain occasions, the believer may rightfully seek God's will through a fleece, a sign of some sort. This may be done, one, if the scriptures have not already answered his request. In other words, it should be totally in error to throw out a fleece concerning whether God desired a believer to quit body harming habits for to do so is clearly implied in many passages. All right, so the Bible says don't do this. (laughs) Don't fleece God on that. He's already given you his answer. Number two, if the immediate circumstances are indefinite and unclear, then we may fleece God. Let us suppose a missionary feels strongly about entering a country whose doors have just been closed to all Christian work. He then would be perfectly justified in asking God to open those doors if it is his perfect will. Okay, so scripture doesn't tell you what to do in many instances of life. A door shut in your face. uh, You thought you're supposed to do that. God, open this door if it's your will. How many times have you prayed that? Yeah, that's a form of fleecing God. Because you aren't determining on your own, I'm going to bust this door down no matter what it takes, nor are you completely quitting. You're in this like limbo state, you're in this liminal space, kind of kind of straddling a threshold, the link of the other part in here, um, about what to do. And so you're asking God to help you, give you any guidance, a little nudge anywhere. And then third, um, we may fleece God if... His fleece does not limit the action God must take. If our fleece does not limit the action God must take. To illustrate this, it would be unwise for a person, uh, it would be unwise for a pastoral candidate when preaching a trial sermon to pray that God would show him this was the church he should accept by having exactly seven come forward during the invitation for salvation. Oh, that's ridiculous. I'm also laughing because this example is not going to hit many of you very directly. How many of you are going to do a trial sermon at a church to see if you should take it over? Um, maybe one or two of you listening, if that's your case. And great. This is a great, um, <laughs> so called accidental example. But anyways, whatever. Uh, So, you shouldn't fleece God as saying, let only seven respond to this gospel presentation. So, Wilmington continues, "'What if there were eight present that morning whom God desired to save? Or what if there were indeed seven there under conviction, all being dealt with by the Holy Spirit, but it was not God's perfect will for the pastoral candidate to accept the church?' So that's an example. I think what he's saying is you're fleecing God way too specifically. Basically, you're treating him like a genie and you're asking him to do this to the T. Cross the T and dot the I and then I'll believe. <laughs> How many of you have ever wanted him to write it in the sky with a sky rider? Then I will know. <laughs> so now he brings this conclusion. In Gideon's case, while God did not honor, I'm sorry, In Gideon's case, while God did honor his fleece prayer, it was nevertheless unnecessary, for he already knew what he should do, and unprofitable, for he later needed reassurance again. Chapter 7, verse 10. That's when God says, Hey, Gideon, it's time to do this, but if you're still scared, why don't you go down to the camp and see what the soldiers are saying amongst themselves. And there he heard them exchanging a dream about how God has given the Midianites into the hands of Gideon. And then he worships God and he says, Arise, men, let's do this. Okay, so Wilmington concludes Gideon should not have fleeced God here. Uh, because first of all, God has already called him to do this. He had an encounter with God and there was an offering that he gave to God and God set it on fire with his staff and disappeared. And like, that's a sign that like, you were not just talking to some random messenger, dude. God was in your midst, right? Um, and then he needs a sign again. So Wilmington saying, apparently the fleecing wasn't effective because he still had doubts. I, however, um can relate to Gideon. And so maybe I'm speaking just out of relating. I don't know, but I don't, I don't blame Gideon for being afraid. I'm talking about later when he asked for the sign later. And here's the dream from the soldiers. He's, he's been reduced to 300 men. Are you sure? God, how many times have you had to make a radical decision like that? And you're just saying, can I just have some backup here that I did the right thing? You know, the fleecing thing you did way back then, he didn't fleece God about cutting his army down to 300. He fleeced God about whether or not he should go into battle. He was just afraid. Over and over, there's this theme in Gideon of fear, and fear is that thing which will enclose our fire in a jar, will keep the lion in a cave, will keep the wheat secure in a husk. Fear will do that. And what this story seems to me to be about is God drawing us out of those securities so that we can become the full image of what he's intended us to be, right? So if it requires in our weak faith to ask for help all the time, I don't think that God's upset. It doesn't necessarily mean that we should do it all the time either. And here's where I think I would draw the line is if I am fleecing God over and over, And refuse to act because I'm just not quite content with any of the signs he's given me. I think that is a lack of faith. That's a lack of acting when he's told us to act, right? But I think God understands, as the Psalms say, he knows our frame that we're dust and that sometimes we're gonna just not be sure and want to be sure. And guess what? God doesn't have to answer your fleece. Yeah, did you ever think about that? If I put God to the test, There is no obligation on his part to answer me. The pity will be, instead, that I am sustaining obedience. I am sustaining action by waiting for him to answer my fleece. That's the error. So there's no error in wanting signs. There's no error in wanting some security. But that's not living by faith. You're still going to need faith, even if you know. Faith is simply trusting and relying on God. You're still going to trust and rely on him. Um, I don't think there's an error in wanting certainty, but it's up to God to give it or not. But if you want it so badly that I will not move until I'm 100% certain, you may never get that. And then you will be paralyzed in your cave. You're never going to step out and you're never going to roar like a lion. You're going to be that sad, unfulfilled potential of a cowardly lion. So, just some thoughts on to fleece or not to fleece. (laughs) I don't know if that's very conclusive, but it's some thoughts and some of the work from Wilmington on um, how to think about that. So, go fleece or don't fleece. now to close with a preview of the upcoming chapters as we always do. We'll be in Judges 13 through 16 looking at Samson. Pastor Mike will be teaching that as I will be performing a wedding on Sunday. So Pastor Mike will be teaching that. Um, So the preview is going to be much more superficial because I'm not actually in the text studying for it. I'm not gaining a ton of insights. Uh, I just There's some things, though, that I would like to point out that you can read about. Um, But you might also notice, uh, just in our um, desire to give ourselves kind of the big picture of the story of the Bible, we are flat-out going right over one judge named Jephthah. And um, that is a tragic tale. And I think I will give a segment to that on the next B-side. Because, yeah, Jephthah is... And it's also one of those hard—I remember studying this passage in the school of ministry, uh, not in great detail, but it was part of a project. And I, I can't remember if you just picked a passage or if we I actually did this one. But there's all these hard passages in Scripture to interpret, and this is one, because at the end, Jephthah promises an oath to God. Hey, if you give me victory, I will devote to you the first thing that comes out of my house. And His daughter is the first to come out and greet him. And he wails because she had no clue. And now he's got to devote her to God. And there's all the debate. What does that mean? Does it mean devote her to virginity? Does it mean that she's going to be, you know, some sort of version of like a Nazarite vow? Or does it mean what it seems to mean? Sacrifice. And did Jephthah... Was this a, a... Like an oversight? Should I have off said the first animal that I see? Or, or did he have a sense that it would be a human, but thought maybe be a servant or somebody not as important? Which, of course, would raise all kinds of questions about Jephthah's character, which, of course, judges does all the time. Uh, These judges are not wonderful examples to live by. It's their courage. And yet, shockingly, Jephthah is one of the ones, uh, at least alluded to, in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But here's here's Jephthah's really, in a lot of um, commentators' perspective, he's the turning point of the book of Judges. Because though Gideon sort of went from great to not so great in the way he sought revenge upon some of his own Israelites and then just became this... Uh, reclusive and um, reclusive guy who sets up this idol figure that all the, he takes the gold from the people and then creates an ephod, which is this vestment for um, divining the God's will and stuff. So it's idolatry. Uh, In Israel, it says they they whore after that. Like, Gideon doesn't end well. His son is just a tyrant. Uh, And then Jephthah, doesn't end well either, uh, possibly sacrificing his daughter. And then we come to the last and final judge, at least major judge. There's a few minor ones in between, but the, the 12th and final judge is Samson. And he's just morally, he's the worst of the lot. So Judges has been spiraling downward. And what you're also going to see coming up after chapter 16, chapter 17 through 21, um, just the worst of the worst in Judges. This book, you know, it starts dark with Israel struggling, and it ends really dark with Israel beyond struggling. (laughs) They are inflicting their own suffering upon themselves. And, by the way, it's also how Samson ends. He ends in darkness, his eyes gouged out, he's blind, and he's where? Of all places, a Philistine temple. He's where Israel has been, and the reason the book of Judges is such a struggle, whoring after other gods in their temples. And he does bring down the temple and kills more Philistines than throughout the rest of his life, but he becomes a symbol of Israel itself. Just morally deteriorating to the point of blindness and imprisonment and just full on living in the temples of other gods. So that's one thing to look for is look at, look at Samson, yes, as a genuine individual judge, but also that his life is a symbol of Israel as a whole. So you can look for that. Also, notice that Samson is a Nazarite, which means he, Has to grow his hair out. He cannot eat anything related to the vineyard. Eat, drink, touch. uh, And he cannot touch a dead body. Look for the ways in which he violates this vow. Because it seems that his strength, and we all know Samson has supercharged strength, his strength lies in his dedication to Yahweh. It's when he begins to go against these vows, and specifically when he's hanging around a prostitute who cuts off his hair, that he loses his strength. It's not that the hair had magical powers and made him strong, it's that the hair was a symbol of his dedication to Yahweh, and he now flirted with this prostitute to the point that he's no longer devoted to Yahweh. So the hair gets physically cut to just to make the symbol perfectly clear for us that Samson has turned his back on his devotion to Yahweh. And he's therefore lost his strength. Not that Yahweh, not that God punishes us for, you know, oh, I made you such a loving person. People see you're you such a good servant, but you did this one sin, so you're no longer a good servant. You're going to be selfish the rest of your life. That's not how he works, and that's not what he does to Samson. It's a symbol. It's a lesson. It's teaching us and showing us that when we don't devote ourselves to Yahweh, um we lose strength because the only strength we ever had was in him from the beginning and so the church loses its effectiveness it loses its strength when we stop being devoted to Jesus as the way the church uh, you you christian you lose your effectiveness you lose your power your strength in the world when you start just letting anything into your life um, I'm not. Call- I'm definitely not calling for legalism here either, because I've seen what legalism can do. And in a sense, Samson can also be. You can try reading it this week, see what God shows you. Uh, you can read it as a symbol of what happens when we live in legalism—that we have to do these things. Well, how many times do you see people rebelling against that spirit, right? Um, Jesus didn't come saying you have to do these things in order to be blessed. You have to do these things. No, Jesus came just showing us that this is a better way. Come or don't come. And sometimes legalism backfires because it says you have to do this rather than simply modeling the way of God and saying come or don't come. The other thing about legalism is that it doesn't teach us to learn from our mistakes. It teaches us to never commit a mistake. And that's not good either because what we, I hope we've learned by now is that we can grow from our mistakes. And um, God... You know, God doesn't, he's not looking at us all disappointed. I can't believe he sinned again. God is never surprised when we sin again. He knows us. He knows we're humans. He's disappointed when we don't allow our failures to be opportunities of growth. And I feel like legalism is just a way of avoiding um, the fact that we make mistakes. And I don't think that that's a great route. And so Samson's a great example of how it's not a great route. Legalistic people are very strong and powerful people. And they usually are the people that hold power within Christian communities. This almost seems the more legalistic you are, the more you're applauded, the more you um, are admired. But and, and Samson was strong and admired. But it doesn't always end well. The legalist himself will crack under the weight of his own legalism or the people around them crack. Or, worst of all, and you see this all the time, kids rebelling against their parents' legalism. Um, Yeah, this is just some thoughts. So enjoy reading Samson and hope uh, you guys uh, just are tremendously blessed reading it and then hearing Pastor Mike teach from it. Um, Until next time, I'm Pastor Brandon with grace and gratitude. Thanks for listening.